This is Dave McKay. Come on up, Dave McKay. Dave McKay is sharing from God's Word today. You can clap for him if you want. Dave, his day job when he's not a superhero is that he is the principal at Bidwell Junior High School. But you are also a Marine. Is that true? That's true. How does that affect your leadership? Um, Every aspect of it. So integrity, perseverance, honor. You're going to trigger me here in a second. I'm going to start like... Weeping, out or you're gonna bark, bark, you're bark oh, out oh, some stuff. Oh, 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 oh. Oh. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> um, I love that about you. That, that God has always been shaping Dave, including, and God's always been shaping us as well. For moments like this, where He has allowed you to be shaped through circumstances, some good, some really hard. He's. I've watched Dave persevere through trial. I've watched him handle delicate things. He was on our board. Served on our board. Thank you for doing that. And during some of the most difficult years here at Neighborhood Church. Um, and I'm really thankful for you. I love your wife, Jill, and your kiddos. You're a blessing to us. Thank you for stewarding your gifts well. And thanks for sharing with us. I know Dave's got a really strong word for us this morning. So you have to turn both ears on, not just one. Welcome Dave McKay with me. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, and thank you to the worship team. He met me exactly where I was at this morning, and it was, it was amazing. Good morning to our friends at home as well. Kind of jealous that I'm not on my couch right now, but it'll be there soon. I'm honored and humbled to be able to share with my extended church family here today. And what I have to say this morning will probably not flow like a typical sermon, so please bear with me if an introduction seems too long, or if I go off on a tangent on an illustration, or if I quote too much of a passage from Scripture. My words this morning reflect the back and forth I experienced with God while praying through these verses, and I felt led to share them with you as is, however gritty the delivery may be. I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I choose to believe that God used ordinary people, 40 authors, inspired by his spirit, but still retaining their autonomy across three continents and three languages over a span of approximately 1,600 years to craft one 66-book story designed to show us our need for a savior, our need for Jesus, the word made flesh. Perhaps that goes without saying for some of us, but for others, We may not be so convinced. As I stand before you today, I admit that I must make the choice to be convinced on an almost daily basis. Much like we must make the choice to truly forgive someone who has grievously wronged us over and over again. It sounds blasphemous to compare belief in God's word to forgiving someone who has injured us, but that is how hard it is for me. The doubt, the fear, almost constantly creep into my spiritual walk, like an ominous fog in an old horror film. Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That desperate father in Mark 9.24 is me. I wonder, do you identify with him too? That father's desperate plea to Jesus is one of the most comforting and faith-strengthening verses in the entire Bible for me. 
When that fog starts creeping in with that claustrophobic feeling of being trapped in the squirrel cage of self, I can inwardly utter that plea to Jesus and feel the guilt subside as I visualize him taking me back one more time. As surprised as I may be by my lack in faith and my lapse in faith, it often just sneaks up on me. Jesus is not surprised. He is never surprised. He always knows how many more moments like that I will have before he calls me home. And he loves me anyway. He allows me to choose to abide in his love anyway. He carries me through the most trying seasons anyway. Whether you engage with the secular world for your entire day or for merely a fraction of it, it's not difficult to see our faith trampled in the media, mocked and caricatured in shows and movies. And we haven't even approached the attack on the Bible on the belief that it is God's inerrant word. In a day and age in which a politically correct pick and pull theology that effectively places the individual on the throne rather than God sounds good to many people. It is easy to dismiss parts of the Bible that don't fit into the worldview that makes us feel at ease. We are living in a consummate lean on your own understanding culture. And in this context, the book of Proverbs, the book containing the wisest sayings from the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, can read like so many fortune cookies, cracked and spread out on the dining room table. Like those little word magnets that invite kitchen guests to create nifty little sayings or haiku on your fridge. The denigration of scripture in our culture is crippling to our walk with Jesus. And it often leaves me feeling beat down. And I must confess that it was with this feeling that I approached this message on Proverbs 27. Of my almost 48 years on this earth, about 20 have been spent not walking with the Lord. Like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I've lived that proverb out more times than I'd like to admit. But I've also learned to recognize when I'm faced with the choice of turning back to the old life, of putting myself on the throne and leaving Jesus on the cross, or embracing the new life, putting Jesus on the throne and tacking my old self to the cross. I pressed into God, to his word, at times quite desperately while preparing this message. I've learned that the way out of a spiritual crisis is by increasing prayer and study of the word, not abandoning them. So if you're struggling with your faith today, if you're feeling beat down by the negativity and despair from the bombarding of all angles, I'd like to invite you to pause that mental death spiral for just a few minutes. For just a few minutes, simply make the choice to believe. Believe that the words we are about to read were not harvested from a fortune cookie, but on the contrary, are the very words of life that can speak to your unique circumstances if you let them. Imagine these words written by the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 being spoken to us today as we struggle to cling to God's wisdom rather than the wisdom of our popular culture of this age. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak God's secret wisdom, 
a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Scripture does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Before we dive into Proverbs 27, into the secret wisdom of God, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that somehow you have given us the mind of Christ, that somehow we can individually and corporately tap into your mind. And I invite you here today, please give us a message of wisdom to speak among the mature and the immature alike, to our friends and to our strangers, to our neighbors alike. Lord, although we have no idea really of what you have prepared for us, for those who love you. Lord, please give us a sneak peek. Please pull back the curtain during these times and, and give us just a glimpse, Lord. Please remind us that we are, are not receiving a spirit of the world. We're not reading fortune cookies uh, or reciting maxims, Lord, but we, we have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living in us. Please teach us today through your spirit, through your word. Please use anything that I have to say to illuminate that scripture. But please, first and foremost, speak to each person here today through your word, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I was drawn to Proverbs 27 because it falls in the series of Proverbs associated with instruction to leaders, something that's near and dear to my heart. The increasingly deepening division plaguing our society today may be the strongest empirical evidence of the need for authentic, spirit-driven leadership. Where there is no vision, the people perish. In many ways, the only vision we see is one driven by fear, anger, hostility, and despair. Civil discourse is a rare find. How many of us simply choose to abstain from conversations with people about current events because it's just not worth getting shouted down before you can even begin to share your point of view? In a bumper sticker culture that seemingly seeks to herd us into one corral or another, as Christians, as those who have the mind of Christ, we should all be the spiritual leaders in a given discussion, especially with or in front of non-believers. 
Let's analyze Proverbs 27, focusing on verses 17 through 21, through this lens of spirit-driven leadership. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects a man. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. If you were, in fact, able to pause that death spiral in your mind for a minute and just clear your thoughts, I'm confident that God put some pictures in your mind already as you read or heard some of those verses. My reason for analyzing these verses through the lens of strife and division in our society today, of the need for spirit-driven leadership, is based on the pictures that I believe God was placing in my mind as I prayed through these verses. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The imagery here and its implications for leadership are clear. I wonder, though, if your mind goes first to an image of a chef efficiently sharpening her blade, of choice in the kitchen, or if you picture the blacksmith pounding away at the sword-to-be in his shop. With all of the friction, division, and controversy abounding in our society today, how can we leverage our present circumstances to make one another more effective followers of Jesus? I'm not a biblical languages scholar, but I believe the meaning here speaks to the very essence or core or countenance of a person rather than some, something more superficial like an exterior polishing. I've experienced this kind of sharpening both ways. A friendly conversation with a brother that goes deep, challenging my reasoning or outlook on a given topic, as well as in more pointed interactions that saw some sparks fly. While the former is definitely more pleasant, I believe that we as the body of Christ must not shy away from the latter when our society is starved for role models in civil discourse, for unifiers who need not agree on every single detail in order to embrace a shared reverence for the ties that bind us together, namely faith in Jesus as the king of our lives. But what does it matter to a secular society how Jesus followers push one another in their thinking? Thinking about the literal part of the comparison, what kinds of instruments would one be sharpening in King Solomon's world? Certainly, weapons like swords, but also agricultural tools like the Sith. If we take the sword imagery, I think of the returning King Jesus in Revelations 19. If you haven't read Revelation in a while and are mentally stuck on the coloring book version of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, handing out fortune cookies to all the kids, brace yourself because while Jesus does in fact love all the little children of the world, there will also come a day when he will return to restore all things, to vindicate the victimized, to declare triumph the terrorized. John describes his vision. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This Jesus means business. And the words that come out of his mouth, the word of God, the Bible, is metaphorically compared to a sword. So as we sharpen one another's core person with God's word, we foreshadow that victorious day when Jesus will annihilate evil with that very same word. The same power that conquered the grave lives in you and me as believers. Consider these verses from Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. From 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And finally, we have the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you read that entire armor of God passage in verses 10 to 17, you'll notice that the sword is the one offensive piece in the full armor of God. When they go low, we go high is a popular saying. But I don't think that standard is quite high enough for believers. Rather, when they go low, Christians should go to the most high. For we are charged with coming back with the word of God, not to win some insignificant debate, but to point people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus, who is the ultimate victory. Of course, it's easy to give in to the harsh culture and sling mud back at the social media crowds, but we don't get let off that easy when we place Jesus on the throne of our lives rather than a given cause. Going back to the agricultural application of sharpening iron, the Sith, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When we sharpen one another, we prepare one another to go out as the Lord's workers into his harvest field. Yes, those faces we were just lambasting in our mind's eye, those pointed social media posts that we were mentally drafting, those witty retorts that we were rehearsing for that next encounter. That is actually our harvest field. And we are to sharpen one another, not to take people out as though they were the enemy, but rather to lead them to Jesus and entrusting all of the necessary changes to him for the making. Are we worshiping a cause and using Jesus as a means to an end? Or are we truly worshiping Jesus as we faithfully live out our one true cause, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commands us, including his new command, 
to love one another deeply. He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. If you've ever seen a healthy, productive fig tree, then you know how much fruit we're talking about here. Continuing with the agricultural illustration, we are perhaps given the image of a humble worker tending their assigned tree, perhaps with a recently sharpened tool, pruning and trimming to ensure a bountiful harvest for the master of the orchard, their boss, who will likely pay them their wages out of the profits made by the harvest. When Jesus tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20, he has the master line up his workers at the end of the day to pay each one for their day's labor. Since fields and orchards require tending nearly year-round, it is unlikely that the workers wait until the fruit is harvested and sold to receive payment for their services. No, the master of the harvest field knows that the harvest will come and entrusts the care of each tree, of each vine, to his hired workers. It's as though he gives them a daily wage, their daily bread, in exchange for their obedience, their faithfulness, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come when the full harvest is gathered. I consider it a part of the daily evidence for a creator beyond time and space that many trees and plants thrive when tended by a skillful hand rather than being allowed to grow untamed. In this time of panic and scarcity, we can choose to believe that God will still give us this day our daily bread. And he will continue to provide all that we really need as we walk in obedience with him. I wonder though, if God is speaking to you and me through our circumstances. Like some of you who live on wells, my family is faced with the prospect of losing our natural water source. No big deal, just hook up to the city water, right? Well, not as simple as it may sound, it also begs the question of where the city is drawing their water from and the relative scarcity of that water source. And then of course there's the water bill that some of you already know too well. I confess that when my neighbor came and told me the other day that their well went dry, it wrecked me. I was anxious and afraid to the point of not being able to sleep. That ominous fog of despair once again creeping into my thoughts. I prayed and prayed through the anxiety and began to feel God's peace return to me as I believe he reminded me that sometimes he needs to prune our lives. I was convinced about how excuse me, I was convicted about how attached I had become to some of the things requiring water around my house that I needed to let die in order to live with more peace of mind as the water source beneath my feet dwindled day by day. I wonder if God wants to prune something in your life today. I wonder if, ironically, he is waiting for you to accept that which he must prune in order for you to feel truly free to go out as workers into his harvest field, to reap a crop of hope-filled, unshakable Jesus followers who also possess the peace that surpasses all understanding. He who looks after his master will be honored. This is the work to which our master calls us. I invite you once again to consciously make the choice just for another few minutes to allow yourself to inwardly, completely surrender to belief to imagine the joy that we will experience at the end of our work in the field when God calls us home and Jesus tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. 
I believe there is an actual supernatural power source that we tap into when we paradoxically surrender our stubborn will to Jesus' service. The peace that surpasses all understanding that comes from knowing that we have eternal life through our faith in and acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. As John 17 says, now this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something that believers must wait for as a worker waits for his wages, but rather something that we can claim now, today, at this moment, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, to know that everything that we do for our master will be honored by actually mattering for all of eternity. As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects a man. Under the right conditions, the water surface can produce a mirror-like reflection. In our search for meaning, for mattering in our daily lives, being able to look ourselves in the mirror is not just a figure of speech. We can sometimes fail to really see ourselves in the mirror, say in the morning while brushing our teeth in the busyness and the chaos of life. We sometimes take that reflection for granted. But have you ever really stared back at yourself? Have you ever had an actual auditory conversation with yourself in the mirror? There is something sobering about staring into your own eyes. Similarly, our hearts reflect who we truly are in our innermost being. Jesus has something to say about the heart of a person. In Matthew chapter 12, we find Jesus under attack from the superficially religious Pharisees once again. Jealous of Jesus' growing followers and worried about losing their esteemed positions, the Pharisees typically tried to undermine Jesus, catch him in his words, or draw attention to some rule that they thought he was breaking. And they had quite a few from which to choose. 613 Torah rules to be exact. Many of these rules related to family life, diet, and hygiene. Imagine the pressure to follow so many rules. So much pressure that it was probably easy for people to lose sight of why the rules were handed down in the first place. Not as public displays of self-righteousness, but for practical order and cleanliness. Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath, which offended the Pharisees because it constituted work, something prohibited on God's holy day of rest. Jesus quickly exposes their hypocrisy by reminding them that they would certainly rescue one of their farm animals if it was in distress on the Sabbath. So how much more was God willing to heal an actual human being? On a side note, one of my favorite lines from the series, The Chosen, is adapted from this scene. In the TV show, the Pharisees tell Jesus, if God wanted this man healed on the Sabbath, he would have done it himself. To which Jesus immediately replies, interesting point. If you haven't seen The Chosen, please do yourself a favor and check it out. Just be ready to binge watch. Back to the biblical account. Undeterred, the Pharisees bring Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. The people were understandably astonished and began wondering out loud if Jesus was the promised Messiah. Jealous, the Pharisees make the claim that it is only by the power of demons that Jesus is able to drive out demons. After once again pointing out their flawed reasoning, Jesus cuts to the heart of the Pharisees' problem, namely, their hearts. 
You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. In other words, the Pharisees' words revealed their true desire. Not to shepherd the people of Israel, not to point them to God, but to spiritually abuse them for their own egos. No wonder why Jesus rebuked them so harshly. They neglected their duty as the spiritual leaders, as the unifiers of their community to pursue selfish ambition. They were interested in being right more than doing right. At the time, Jewish tradition taught that the coming Messiah would reveal himself by accomplishing all four messianic miracles because they believed that these conditions could only be healed by God himself. They were one, cleansing a leper, Matthew chapter nine, check. Two, casting out a deaf and dumb spirit, Matthew chapter nine, chapter 12, and Mark chapter seven, check. Healing birth defects, Matthew chapter 12, and John chapter five, check. And raising the dead after three days. Jesus waiting until the fourth day to go and see Lazarus and raise him from the dead makes a little more sense in this context from John chapter 11. While Jesus hadn't yet raised Lazarus from the dead, he had performed two, perhaps three of the messianic miracles and the people knew it. They were keeping score at home. They were buzzing with excitement. Rather than rejoicing at the long-awaited coming of their Messiah, the Pharisees revealed their true motives, worshiping a cause and trying to use God as a means to an end by finding ways to deny Jesus, ultimately leading to his crucifixion. For some people who choose not to believe, no miraculous sign will ever be enough. And Christians slipping into Pharisee mode certainly won't help the matter. It is not an evidence issue. The evidence is all around us and documented in history, but a heart issue. Do I want to serve and submit to God's authority or do I wanna do whatever makes me feel good in the moment? That choice lies before us every day. All the more reason to intentionally invite people into our lives who will sharpen us. Death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. Taken in the context of these last few years, Butte County residents probably don't need any illustrations for this verse. From natural disasters like floods, then fires, then floods, then more fires, then a rock bottom drought, with a controversial pandemic mixed in. These times seem apocalyptic. I feel like many of my friends and I have been faced with losing loved ones this year before their time, although we know God's timing is the only timing that matters. Even as we know that these loved ones are with Jesus, as human beings, it's hard not to feel the fog of despair creeping in. Whereas some tragedies have had a bonding effect on communities, it seems like even that capacity is evaporating as quickly as our water supply. Hell never has its fill and neither do societal ills. And yet some people seemingly can't get enough. The division, the vitriol, the manipulation seem to take on a life force of their own, blazing through our communities and through our relationships. Sometimes we as Christians can find ourselves getting caught up in them 
as though Jesus returned dependent on a particular outcome, depending on us winning this particular argument. In these times, our friends and neighbors don't need fortune cookie wisdom or platitudes. They need the mind of Christ. They need the secret wisdom of God. They need Jesus followers to model what it means to sharpen one another and engage critically without being offended. In some cases, they need us to model what godly suffering looks like. As Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. But while these tragedies and trials can cause us to stumble, we are also vulnerable to the idol of other people's approval and acceptance. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. If the word of God is represented by a holy double-edged sword, then despair and praise from people sometimes form an unholy double-edged dagger in these divisive times. As addicting as toxic negativity can be, there is always the other extreme of people cheering you on as you slug it out on Facebook. Just like our faith and resolve get tested in hardships, the way precious metals get refined in extreme heat, who or what we actually worship can be tested by the praise we receive from people. How intentionally do we use the positive recognition that we may receive to point people back to Jesus to give God the glory? For some of us, deflecting praise from others back onto God is almost second nature. For others, it sounds to unbelievers like we're trying too hard to be humble. For still others, we feel like we are spitting out cliches platitudes that may have been novel and effective at one time, but seem to have gone stale when used today. I confess that I struggle here more than when despair looms, and I don't like that about myself. My prayer life recently has been circling around asking God to show me how to give him the glory, how to point people to him in a strictly secular environment in which people are easily offended without using Christianese. If people are appreciative of me for helping them navigate a difficult time in their lives, I want to tell them about the true reason for the hope that I have. I want to turn the favor, to, I want to turn the favor that God has granted me back into praise and reverence for his name. And I don't have it all figured out yet, but I feel like the more I pray about it, the more I believe that God is working on something in me that needs refining. I choose to believe that God will show me how to be a more effective, intentional, explicit, bold witness in my secular work according to his timing. One story that gives me peace and direction is Daniel's life in Babylon. I believe that this little five-minute Bible project video entitled The Way of the Exile provides the best application for the verses we have shared today. 
In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice. But they do it nonviolently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. 
Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So living the way of the exile takes intention. Like Daniel and his companions, we Christians have little to gain from our society's total collapse. So we should contribute to the betterment of it. We should contribute to its well-being. That sometimes we, that can mean tactfully and respectfully calling out injustice. Sometimes that can mean refusing to take part in an activity that we know compromises our faith or dishonors God. And sometimes it can mean boasting about our weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on us. For when we are weak, then we are strong. One small adjustment that I've made to my quiet time that has refreshed my stagnating prayer life is praying God's word back to him. If we want to be intentional believers, intentional leaders, then we must make the choice to start our day intentionally. Praying the word, in this case, God's wisdom, back to him, can help refresh your prayer life and begin your day with intention. So would you please join me in praying God's word back to him today as we close our time together. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Lord, I I thank you for the people that you've put in my life, for the women, the men, old and young, who speak to me, who aren't afraid to tell me the truth, who aren't afraid to be vulnerable, who aren't afraid to encourage me and speak that word that's, that's, that's prompted on their heart by you. Lord, and I pray you would make me an effective partner in that. Please help me to see the opportunities to sharpen my brothers and sisters in a godly way, appointing them to you in humility so that we can emerge together stronger, more unified force for leading people to the foot of your cross, Lord Jesus. He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. Jesus, I thank you that, that you've given me my little, my little tree to tend. And, and I pray that I would get up every day doing it for you. And I, I pray that I would trust that my labor for you would not be in vain. And I pray that you would show me how to labor more effectively, more intentionally for you. Not, not for my honor, but for your honor, Jesus. That your name would be praised. That you would show my brothers and sisters and me how to be even more effective workers in the harvest field if there's a place where we should go, whether it's overseas or down the street, please put that on our heart and show us how to minister effectively to convey your word uh, relevantly and sincerely and authentically in this current climate. As water reflects a face, so a man reflects, so a man's heart reflects a man. Lord, I think I speak for my fellow believers here when I, when I ask that when people see us, may they see you. 
May your fruit of the Spirit be manifest in us and pour out of us like streams of living water, even in this drought, Lord, that when people see us, they would be compelled by what we're doing. They would ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have and that we would do so with gentleness and respect, Lord, keeping a clear conscience so that even those who choose to speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, Lord. Death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. Lord, please keep our eyes on you. As you turn your face to us, Lord, may we return your gaze. May we stay fixed on you and on, and on the coming kingdom. May your will be done, Lord. May we not get so caught up in the causes of this day and age that we forget to live out your commission, that we forget to live for you, that we forget that this is just Babylon and we're just passing through, but we're also called somehow to, to make it better around us, to be stewards of the, the grace and the gospel that you've given us, to administer it effectively uh, in our homes, and our neighborhoods, and our workplaces, Lord, and that we would trust that you would give us the words to do that, Lord, supernaturally. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. Lord, finally, thank you for the favor that you've granted us. It is amazing to me when any of us receives praise and favor in this day and age when faith is so scorned. But I think it just shows how starved and thirsty people are for the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray that, that we would be emboldened, that we would be empowered that by, the, by the, your Holy Spirit's work in us and that, that we would know how, that you would teach us how to deflect that praise for us into honor and reverence for your name, that we would use that opportunity to lead people intentionally to a relationship with you. I pray you would send us out today as workers in your harvest field, Lord, looking for that next opportunity to do the good works which you have prepared in advance for us to do and that we would be ready and quick to give the praise to you in a way that is authentic and real and genuine to the people around us, especially the struggling believers and the non-believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. At this time, I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer for any reason, please feel free to come down. And um, again, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that you would go looking for that next opportunity today to glorify God in everything that you think, say, and do. Thank you. God bless you.